Welcome to the Faith and Culture Now podcast. I'm Scott Schiffer, and today I'm joined with Scott Higginbotham. Scott, great to have you here. Hey, it's always fun to have Scott Day with Scott. That's fun. That's right. <laughs> well, this is our first podcast back after the uh, winter Christmas break. And so we are now starting 2023 off right by a, a light, gentle, easy topic. Just kidding. We don't ever do those on, on this podcast. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the issue of fear mongering in churches. And uh, I sort of had, I guess, three ideas in mind with this. Uh, so um, people tend to fear monger by talking about how the world essentially is going down. It's just, you know, be, you know, becoming... Uh, you know, headed towards annihilation, I guess, if you will. Uh, the second thing is that pastors sometimes talk about, you know, other countries and their relationship to the United States and that kind of fear mongering, you know, what's going to happen with, you know, powers that be in the world. And then the third one is that our culture is rotting. Uh, I heard a pastor say uh, the other day that it's a, we live in a culture of death. And, um, and so there's all this sort of, you know, fear mongering from the pulpit. But on the flip side of that, uh, I see things in scripture like, you know, we've been given a spirit of peace or our hope is in the Lord or God provides comfort in the midst of life storms. Or, you know, even in the gospels, Jesus saying, don't be anxious, but trust the Lord. And so these are uh, sort of, I guess, if you will, um, opposed to the ideas of fear and being afraid and being worried. And um, so I wanted to talk a little bit today about, is it appropriate for pastors to spend time fear-mongering from the pulpit? And uh, hear me out, I'm not saying don't be real from the pulpit, and I'm not saying don't present legitimate challenges to our faith or to our world or to our culture. Uh, but the question really is for me, how do we do that in a way that is spiritually nourishing for our congregation? And how do we do that in a way that is faithful to what scripture teaches us about, um, our emotional state of being as we rest in the Lord? Yeah. So what are some of your initial thoughts on this? <laughs> well, you know, that's an awfully big topic right there. Uh, I think about uh, I mean, the first thing that I think of as just as a rejoinder to the fear mongering aspect, at least as a as a pastor or preacher, is that the Bible is replete with um, uh, instruction not to be afraid. Um, and, you know, all the way through the Old Testament, um, as uh, the people of God move into uh, another another thing they're, they're taking over the promised land they are encountering um uh jericho they're encountering um the amalekites they're encountering the philistines how often god shows up or through his spokesman says to the people don't be afraid be not afraid is you know um i think um jesus often talked about you know, don't be afraid of those who can harm the body. Fear him, though, who can, you know, execute real judgment and real punishment on people. Um, and then, you know, to some degree, Paul says, you know, fear those who are in authority. So um, 
on one hand, it's, you know, don't be afraid of things uh, because God has got this, um, have a healthy kind of respect and fear for the authorities that God has put in place. Um, and then follow the model of Jesus, who was not afraid to engage people who disagreed with him or who challenged him or, uh, you know, you don't see Jesus being afraid when he casts demons out of um, legion. Um, you don't see Jesus being afraid when the prostitute comes in um, and uh, she's a prostitute, right? Who anoints his, yeah. Yeah, anoints his feet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Jesus doesn't doesn't show that doesn't model that kind of behavior or that kind of attitude. And I think if we're going to be Christ-like, then we probably ought to be like Jesus in that regard. Um, and then I, I don't know if it's really fair to try to leverage um, things in the world that are not of Christ as some kind of threat to God's kingdom. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I, 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 I've read Genesis, but I also read revelation at the end of the book and it says that God wins. So um, what do I have to be afraid <laughs> of? And so I try to, um, I try to tell my, you know, when they get, when I try to tell my people, when they get up in arms about, you know, the trend of society or the trend of culture or those kinds of things, I, I say, you know, if you serve the Lord of life, then serve the Lord of life and let him lead. And you don't have to be afraid of the results or where the rest of the things go. doesn't mean that everything will always come up roses, but I'm, I'm not afraid of what the outcome is going to be because I know that God is with me and that God is trustworthy and faithful. And he's got, he has an impeccable track record and I have yeah. no reason not to trust him. You know, we live in a fallen world, but the fallen world still has God on a throne Right. And, uh, you know, he's still in control, even when our life or things around us seem out of control. Right. Um, and, yeah, I think there are a lot of Psalms, especially where people like David uh, share their emotions, where they're frustrated or they're scared. But almost all of those Psalms, the um, the fear or the frustration turns to hope in the Lord by the end of the Psalm. Right. Uh, in other words, hey, you know, this is my struggle, but in the midst of my struggle, I'm still going to trust God. Yeah. And um, so I mentioned, you know, sort of these three big picture ideas a minute ago, yeah. but something else that, you know, I, I guess is sort of another way of fear mongering that I think, I, at least I have heard in my experiences from the pulpit quite a bit uh, are, uh, you know, obviously scaring people with hell. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and, and I know people who have gotten saved uh, out of fear of hell and I think their salvation's legitimate and <laughs> accurate yeah. and good. So, uh, I think there is a place for that perhaps. Um, but I also feel like, you know, we don't have a relationship with God just to avoid hell. Right. We have a relationship with God for the sake of having a relationship with God. Yeah. And we should be presenting the gospel to people not to get them out of hell, but to allow them to come into that relationship and experience all the goodness and wonderful things that come with being under the authority of God's kingdom and his leadership. Right. Um, another thing that uh, I've seen people scare uh, congregations with quite a bit is politics, you know, and, uh, and there's, there's to this, that's kind of, kind of a two edged thing because, uh, 
nonprofit organizations, all of them are supposed to not be pushing uh, specific political agendas. Um, and, and so I don't think it's right when a pastor gets up and says, you have to vote this way or, you know, uh, telling your people to vote is great. That's fine. That's good. But let people vote according to their conscience. Um, but but then, you know, saying, well, the government's doing this and we need to be afraid and the government's doing this and we need to be afraid of this. And, uh, you know, that that's the kind of stuff I'm really talking about, not so much about the voting, but more about. You know, well, the government's making this decision, and this is going to affect Christians negatively, or this is going to uh, undermine the moral foundation of our culture, or whatever. And uh, uh, sort of along that same line is the idea of scaring people about things that are happening, like with schools, right? So, oh, these schools are teaching stuff that goes against Christianity, uh, whether that be evolution or whether that be gender-related stuff or you know whatever else. Uh, and then, of course, there's the whole idea of violence in schools nowadays. And then so you've got people scaring that, uh, you know, scaring people along those lines. And, uh, uh, you know, you have some people that homeschool specifically because they're scared of what might happen to their child at school. Now, again, I don't think there's anything wrong with homeschooling. Um, I know people that homeschool. We homeschooled for a year. Uh, and uh, that's great. Uh, but fear shouldn't be the driving factor behind it. And I think that when people homeschool and do it well, that's something they're called to. So, and I know you raised your hand when I said, no people that homeschool. I know you guys homeschool, but we uh, do. Yeah. And, uh, I, sometimes I feel like I need to give an apologetic for why we do homeschool. And, uh, in fact, I was telling a couple at church last night, we were talking about school stuff and they didn't know. And I said, well, we homeschool. And they said, well, why do you do that? And their, uh, their assumption was something. And I said, hang on. Um, I, w- I want you to know we don't homeschool because we are afraid of, you know, those awful sinners in the school. And we're not afraid of what the school might or might not be teaching in this respect. Um, our decision to be a homeschool family stems largely from the fact that my wife is trained as an upper level educator. She was a um, a high level math geometry, you know, like algebra two geometry Mm pre-calculus teacher in high school. And uh, one of the things that it made Kylie say, oh, I would really rather do this out of my house is there were some uh, uh, educational trajectories with, um, uh, the way education was happening, moving from uh, knowing information to sources of information. Uh, it, it frustrated her to no end that she was teaching an algebra two class in which she asked some students what's five times five. And they said, can we have a calculator? And it just boggles the mind. And she said, how am I supposed to teach students who aren't expected to have mastered the things that are before you get into this subject? And mm-hmm. so a lot of that was what what started our journey toward homeschooling? We've been doing it. We we have a 13 year old daughter at home, and she's been doing homeschooling. We've been homeschooling her her whole career, and I think she's doing well. Now that said, uh, Kylie is a a trained secondary educator, and uh, I I feel like I've done pretty well, you know, master's degree in theology, and so learning how to read and write and do. I feel like as a team, we're pretty capable of doing that. I don't Mm -hmm. know necessarily if everybody is, and I don't, I will be the first one to say as a homeschool parent, 
I don't think every homeschool, I don't think every parent is necessarily equipped to be a homeschool parent, even patients, yeah. you know, whatever. And so time, uh, yeah, time, so, patience, there's all, there's all kinds of factors. Yeah. But we don't do it as a, so. we don't do it as a fearful response to mm-hmm. it was a, it was a decision based on educational philosophy more than anything. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, I mean, honestly, different school districts have different trajectories, different rules. And, uh, you know, just the culture of different school districts is of, in such a way that uh, there are places where I think, you know, well, if our kids were in, you know, uh, this school district, we probably would homeschool. Right. And if they were in this other school district, we would let them go. Yeah. Uh, because the school districts do things differently. And, uh, and, and that's not to say, you know, uh, you know, a, a low income district versus a upper, it's, it's not about that. It's about no. teaching methodology and exactly. other things of that, that nature. So, um, but, but again, you know, sort of going back to the idea of just, you know, what, what people say from the pulpit. Right. Um, yeah. I think that for me, um, it's important for pastors to provide spiritual nourishment for their congregations. And so um, I know people that struggle with depression yeah. and sometimes they hear things from the pulpit that um, are said in such a way that when they go out, instead of being spiritually nourished, they're triggered and, you know, sort of headed towards this downward spiral. Yeah. And, um, uh, and, uh, you know, obviously you could say anything. I mean, you know, I've said stuff on this podcast where I think I'm being very clear. And then someone emails me and says, why did you say this? I don't understand. And the way they interpreted what I said is so far from what I meant yeah. that I have to sit back and then go, okay, well, clearly I didn't either communicate that as well as I thought I did, or uh, there are other messages out there that the words that I used uh, got, uh, you know, conflated with these other messages. And, and so I need to be more clear. Right. And, um, and so that, I mean, that happens to everybody, but um, you know, pastors have got to, to really think through, you know, okay, who's in my congregation? Yeah. What is my audience? What mm-hmm. do they know about scripture? How yeah. well does my community know the, know the Bible? And not only that, but where are they spiritually you know, on the whole, like, how can I say something that's going to minister to the baby Christian and the mature Christian in the same sermon? Uh, and and then again, uh, you know, with the spiritual nourishment, my big concern is if we are fear-mongering from the pulpit, then are we really nourishing? Or, you know, are we teaching people to walk in the Lord in the midst of what's going on around us? Or are we teaching them that uh, we should be afraid of what's going on around us, separate from it, um, compartmentalize, segregate, whatever the case is, you know, get into a Christian bubble and outside of, you know, the big bad world. Right. Well, and there's a lot, uh, when I think about fear mongering from the pulpit, I think about it uh, like this. I think a lot of fear mongering comes from reactive preaching. I mm-hmm. saw something, I have to speak to it because it's already happened or I fear it's going to happen. And so I need to let everybody know, you know, this. And I, I do think that there are times, 
and even I've done this in the last five years where there was something that happened that was of significant import that I felt like, okay, I need to respond to this. That's a reaction to some degree, but uh, my, my own practice of preaching is not primarily reactive. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not looking at the news and then you know, fumbling through the scripture in order to find something that responds to what happened in the news this week. Um, Instead, I like to practice what I think of as proactive kinds of preaching and teaching. So um, instead of what I'm going to tell the people being fueled by what has happened, uh, you know, in the news or culturally or in the world or whatever, uh, I'm proactive. So I go to God's word and I say, all right, you know, this week I'm I'm actually starting a series through the book of Titus. And so this isn't a reaction to something that's happened in the rest of the world. I'm going to get proactive. The, Titus tells us that uh, God has a specific kind of structure and mission for the church. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, here's what God wants us to do. No matter what happens in the world around us, this is what God intends to do in his people and through his people. And so let's learn and shape. And there will probably be things that will happen while I'm preaching through Titus that I'll be able to point back and I'll say, isn't it good that God has us in Titus now so that we can, we can, we've already thought about this before this other thing happened. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then it also shapes us for a future ahead, maybe in a year or two years that we didn't see coming. And we already have this foundational kind of process and place. So, um, I, I think a lot of all that to say, I think a lot of fear mongering, a lot of um, fear stuff is based on reactive kinds of things rather than proactively teaching our people and feeding them ahead of time so that they're, they're ready to go. Practice is much better than game time in that respect. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I like the idea of proactive preaching. Uh, I also think that's important because, um, you know, every bit of scripture is God's word. Right. And so, you know, sometimes you'll hear a pastor say, well, I've got to see what's going on. So then God can lead me to the right passage for that week. Yeah. And it's like, well, but it doesn't matter what passage you preach on. It's God's word and it's going to affect people's hearts. It's going to move people spiritually. It's going to nourish people. It's going to feed people. And, uh, you know, so in that respect, it doesn't really matter where you preach from. Now, that being said, um, I think it's also good to sort of have a plan in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the idea of God being a God of order, you right. know? And so, uh, you know, at my church, our pastor frequently, just like you're doing, preaches through an entire book at a time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, even in my own Sunday school classes, I've, you know, gone through a book and then I'll do like a short series on some kind of topic. And then we'll go through another book of the Bible. Right. And that way it, it allows us to have a little bit of change up here and there. Uh, and, and there are times, you know, Christmas Sunday, it's probably a good idea to preach on, you know, something with the incarnation. And so, you know, if I was a pastor and I was in the middle of going through, you know, the book of Joel or something and Christmas Sunday came up, I'd probably hop over to, you know, Luke or Matthew and uh, we would talk about that that Sunday. And then I'd hop back into Joel the next week because you got to have organization, but you also have to have flexibility when necessary. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, for pastors, I mean, Randall Worley, one of the other guys that contributes on here frequently, sure. I think he has all of his sermons out, not not fully outlined, but he knows what passages he plans on preaching on through the entirety of 2023. 
Yeah. And uh, you may as well, or, or at least close to it. No, no. <laughs> so, um, no, some guys are so much better at that than I am. And uh, no, I, I actually kind of take it about a quarter at a time. Yeah. And, uh, so I know uh, when I start in on Titus, it'll probably take me about two months to go through. So that's eight Sundays and I'm actually going to miss one. So, you know, that'll take us through probably about spring break. Um, and then in, I already told our, our music minister, one thing I'd like to touch on this year, I'd like to, uh, I, I'm probably not going to do verse by verse, but I'd like to tackle some of the big ideas in Joshua about um, claiming the promised land and mm-hmm. being God's people on mission. I think that fits very well after, after Titus. Um, and then yeah, I, in the summer, I already thought I'd like to try to tackle a minor prophet. I think that would be um, for me as a preacher, it'd be an interesting challenge. Uh, I just need to kind of see where the spirit leads for that. So I'm just not spiritually mature enough to say that I can do a full calendar year. <laughs> Randall is so much better at that than I am. Uh, but, uh, that's kind of been the, the MO for me since I started in pastoral ministry. And, um, at this point that's, uh, I've kind of settled into a groove that I'm, I'm, I'm comfortably uncomfortable with. And I, I think that that helps me Yeah, and it keeps good. me from being reactive a lot. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, um, the, the whole idea of sort of planning some of this out, allows you to, uh, as a pastor, it allows you to know where you're going and it allows the text to speak for itself, uh, as opposed to, you know, at least in my, in my case, I guess, you know, me putting something on the text to try to deal with the situation. I'm just letting the text speak for itself. Then as situations arise, people can recall what we've already talked about in the text. And, um, that's kind of the idea of, you know, what you're supposed to be going to church to worship, to learn, uh, you know, you, you go to church as you worship as a community. It's important to recognize you're there with all the other believers that you're all in this faith together. And then when you leave the church, you're all hopefully equipped to go out and live that week as the church in the world. And then you come back next week for additional nourishment and, um, and then the spiritual nourishment you get is essentially to, teach you the word of God, teach you about the nature and character of God, give you the opportunity to worship God, um, you know, uh, but, uh, but also to educate you about what God's word says for us so that when something happens during the week, you can recall the things you've learned about God from his word being explained from the pulpit. Right. Right. And I think uh, this is, I bet, I was pulling this up just a little bit ago, but this is Second uh, Timothy one seven, and you may have already had this in mind. Uh, God has not given us a spirit of fearfulness or of fear, um, but instead one of power. And I think power is uh, largely the idea of ability. You know, I I can I can of love that my my life is ordered and directed in a way that is God centered not only toward him, but also toward others and also of sound judgment. And I find a lot of, um, a lot of fear mongering or, you know, fearful kinds of things don't call people towards sound judgment instead mm-hmm. they call people to either rash judgment or reactive judgment, or, you know, however you're going to do that instead of getting ahead of the issue and thinking about it clearly and being able to see God's work in and through the situation. Um, I've, 
I've got to try to find where God is in this situation and hope he hasn't let me down again. And I don't think God's never let us down. I mean, like I said, he's got an impeccable track record. So it's sound judgment kind of has a way of centering me and keeping, keeping me from jumping off the deep end and, you know, being afraid of whatever scenario is transpiring around me and in me. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Uh, and that's a that's a great verse to look at, a great passage to look at for this topic. Um, the other one that I had in mind uh, deals with uh, Paul saying to give thanks in all circumstances. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the context, you know that church is in a rough situation, yeah, and they're facing persecution. And what Paul is saying to them is, in the midst of negative things happening around you for the sake of the gospel, negative things happening around you, still continue to give God thanks. Mm-hmm. And so uh, last Sunday, I well, this last week, I listened to about three or four sermons. Uh, and uh, I heard one pastor say in one of the sermons, uh, essentially, we need to be afraid of the world out there because all this bad stuff's happening. And that's where he ended it. And another pastor said, you know what? There's some really messed up stuff happening in our culture right now. And he said, but God is in control. And then he said, and we shouldn't be surprised when people who are not Christians don't live according to Christian principles because they don't know any differently. They don't believe any differently. And so he said, instead of looking at these people as our enemies, we need to look at them as people who need Christ in the same way that we needed Christ. And when you take that approach, you're no longer, it's not us against them. It's not um, Christians against culture or Christ against culture. It's instead, uh, he's teaching uh, what Reinhold Niebuhr would call Christ transforming or redeeming culture. And, you know, honestly, that's that's really, I think, the direction that things need to happen from the pulpit. Yes, there are things in the culture that do not um, glorify God. There are also things in the church that don't really glorify God. We have to sort of do self-reflection as well. Yeah. But even when things in the world don't bring honor to the Lord, the Lord is honored in truth. And um, as his people, we can bring light to situations that need illuminating. Um, Probably in the last couple of years, one of the things that has affected me more than anything uh, is I I went to this educational conference and uh, Tim Tebow happened to be the main speaker at the educational conference. And uh, which, by the way, I don't know that anybody was like, oh, yeah, Tim Tebow is a great academic. You know, uh, they, they brought him because of his motivation and uh, leadership and other things of that nature. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. Um, but Good but deal. Tim Tebow talked about he didn't really I don't he hardly mentioned football at all. He talked primarily about the work that he does with human trafficking. And that's his big ministry is trying to put a stop to human trafficking in the United States. And um, his wife was with him and she spoke. And uh, I didn't know this about her before this conference, but um, 
she was actually almost kidnapped and put into human trafficking at gunpoint uh, in uh, South Africa, where she grew up. Okay. And she actually got out of a car uh, and ran, and someone else allowed her to get into their car and took off with her as they ran from the guy chasing her with the gun who okay. had surrounded her car while she was just, you know, at a stoplight somewhere. And um, anyway, um, you know, so so they're talking about, you know, in this in this conversation, just that, you know, all this stuff is happening. Uh, but then they talked, both of them talked about how uh, it's Christ that gives them, you know, strength to uh, deal with you know, these kinds of things they've had to deal with in the past. And it motivates them to do more to try to help bring awareness to this, but also to help uh, put a stop to it in every way that they can. And so, and they actually do a lot of um, work of actually trying to find people who are being trafficked and actually remove them from those situations, not just, uh, hey, we're just going to tell people that trafficking happens and that's how we stop it. They're out there going, if you know someone who's trafficked, get us their information so we can get to them and get them out of the situation. Right. And um, uh, that was very, that very much affected me because uh, I think, you know, well, you know as, a, as an academic and as a theologian, I'm always talking about different doctrinal issues, but what am I really doing to try to actually make a difference in the world? And um that's a great example, I think, of just, you know, there is darkness out there, but there's also light. And as Christians, we don't run from the darkness. We bring the light to the darkness. No. And that's exactly what he's doing in his ministry. And I think that's kind of what we should be getting equipped to do from the pulpit um, in our congregations each week. Not always that extreme, but, um, uh, you know, if... If there's something happening, you know, in the town where I live and a pastor talks about it from the pulpit, then the people who are in the congregation should be able to go out and say, how can I help this situation? How can I make a difference in this situation and not go out and go, oh, maybe we should move out of town because that bad thing's happening. You know, no, we don't want to run from it. We want to be a light in the midst of it. And you can't do that with a spirit of fear. But you can do that with the spirit of peace that you talked about from First Timothy. And don't you think that, you know, the, the things that you talked about at the beginning of this conversation, uh, you know, the government is doing this or that, um, you know, the culture is just so awful or um, I'm trying to remember what the other the third thing was that you said. But they don't you think that they create a sense in which. As a Christian, I can't do anything. And so I have to fight either anonymously by voting, which doesn't actually get my hands dirty at all. Right. I don't, I don't actually have to engage the issue. All I can, I can cast a ballot and, you know, that, that almost creates a sense of anonymity. And uh, I've done my deed. I, you know, I can wipe my hands of it and say, at least I did something. Um, you know, culture is so bad, then I just need to recoil and I need to fall into my huddle, whether holy or not. Mm -hmm. um, and so a, a lot of this creates a lot of this fear kind of thing creates a sense in which uh, this is just going to happen. And there is very little or nothing I can actually do about it. Whereas 
the gospel, um, King Jesus actually says, no, there is something that you, yes, even you can do about it. And that's where he talks about, you know, when, when you think about Matthew 5, when you think about uh, Jesus talking about a city on the hill whose light can't be hidden, or that you are the salt of the earth and that you are scattered in to help preserve and um, well, preserve your culture. Uh, those are those are active kinds of things. And the people that Jesus is talking to in Matthew 5, neither saw themselves as a light for everyone else. They thought that they were useless and worthless. Um, they didn't think of themselves as any kind of, of having any kind of preservative quality because they had no voice. They were poor. They were mistreated, you know, whatever it's going to be. So one of these wonderful things about uniting and listening to King Jesus is he says that you actually have more power to push back against darkness than you realize. Mm -hmm. so get out there and engage because that's where the gospel and the kingdom engage these things. The other side of that too, is that uh, Paul even says in Ephesians that we, I think it's Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. In other words, it's not other human beings that I'm having to fight against mm -hmm. other human beings, maybe pawns in this kind of spiritual thing, maybe ignorant of what they are being used to do, but the real battle is against these spiritual forces. And so we have to be people of prayer, but we also need to be people of action. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that I'm embracing some kind of Schleiermacher esque, no spiritual Christianity, it actually means that I am embracing the very real practical issue that prayer works, but prayer works most when I put my feet to work in a gospel kind of way, if that makes yeah. sense. I've heard it say that prayer without action isn't really prayer. Right. And uh, uh, I think to a, to a large degree, that's, that's very true. You know, um, prayer works on us to change our hearts, to align our ideas with God's ideas. Uh, prayer works to embolden us and, you know, prayer works to move God to do things. But, um, you know, just like any, you know, really just like any covenant throughout scripture, um, you know, whenever God is working with the people, the people also have a set of responsibilities. And, you know, as we pray, you know, hey, God, you know, you know, I, you know, my so-and-so is is sick with, you know, whatever, that doesn't mean stop going to the doctor <laughs> in the midst right. of the prayer, right? Uh, you know, in the same way, you know, hey, God, this is happening in my community. Help this to stop and use me as a means for helping stop it, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's that's really the more appropriate thing, not just, God, you do it and let me just kind of kick back. <laughs> so. I, was, I was challenged this week just thinking about that notion of prayer and the action that follows with prayer. And it was, it's a, it's a story from the Gospels that isn't even connected with that idea, but uh, it's uh, Jesus out before the feeding of the, the 5,000. I can't remember if it's the 5,000 or if it's the 4,000. Feeding of the 5,000, the, the apostles look out and they say, these people are hungry, Lord, and they need something to eat. And Jesus looks at them and says, okay, then feed them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, on one hand, the prayer is God, these people are hungry. We don't anticipate the answer to prayer of God saying, okay, well then you start to feed them and I'll provide the means. We usually stop there and we say, Lord, feed the sheep. 
And we, then we sit back and say, okay, well, however you're going to do it, but I don't necessarily want to be involved in the process. Uh, <laughs> and yet Jesus turns that right around on these guys in this field and says, fine, then you do it. Now, obviously Jesus steps in and through some very miraculous means provides everything that the entire crowd needs. That's beyond what the disciples had immediately at their disposal. Um, but just as a point of reflection, the response from Jesus to say, all right, fine, then, then do what you can is at least a beginning to answer the prayer that they mm-hmm. had brought to Jesus. I thought that was, it was challenging and difficult and uh, yeah, it, it, it was, it shaped my heart some this week. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, uh, that's very good. And uh, I, I think that's a important aspect of of prayer, recognizing that we have responsibility in when we request things of God for him to do things to work around us, that we have responsibility to uh, join him in that process and and get on board with it. Um, however, that may be with whatever gifts and abilities and so on that he's given us. So um, sort, of, sort of conclude today to maybe try to recap Um it's important for people to be able to feel like when they go to church together as a community, that they can worship as a community. And when they're in church, they should receive spiritual nourishment. And when I say spiritual nourishment, what I primarily mean is that their, uh, their soul should be lifted, uh, but also that they should be taught about God's word. And, um, they should be able to leave understanding, hopefully something about God's word that they didn't know before. Uh, they came into the to the worship service, and um, pastors have a responsibility to feed the sheep. Um, I was hearing a at a conference a couple weeks ago uh, where a psychology uh, professor who primarily focuses on religious trauma was speaking, and she said the pastor's job is to feed the sheep, not to feed on the sheep. And I thought that was pretty, pretty powerful. You know, pastors need to um, feed their congregation spiritually nourishing food. And when you go to church and what the pastor is doing instead is filling you with fear and anxiety and not in a way that causes you to rely on the Lord, but causes you to think, oh, no, we're on our own out here. That's just not the right way to go about presenting the message. And so it's okay to talk about negative things happening in our culture, in our world, uh, with other countries, but we do so always from the perspective that Jesus is the king, he is the Lord of all, he's on his throne, and he um, he is aware of everything happening, and he is in charge even when things don't always seem that way from our perspective. Um, And so uh, there's no need to necessarily scare people in your sermons. Um, But there is good cause to have people reflect on things. And as they reflect on things, there should be a lead towards some kind of an action. Hey, yeah, this is happening. What can you do about it? How can you affect this in a positive way for God's kingdom? How can you take what's happening and help that become a bridge to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Agreed. Agreed. So, well, yeah. Scott, thanks so much for being here today and being on uh, the Faith and Culture Now podcast. For those of you guys listening at home, as always, 
Uh, thank you. And we will see you again next time on the Faith and Culture Now podcast.